with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a really, really, really great show for you this week. We start out talking about the importance of factual, age-appropriate, accurate sex ed. It's so important, yet it's under attack. After that, we dive into what's happening with Barbie, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, and more. Culture change is moving people, and it's kind of fun. Next up, we talk about some positive, proactive legislation that's gaining momentum to help create safer communities. And then we close the show talking about the childcare cliff that's happening in September, what you can do about it, why it matters to you, even if you don't have someone in childcare right now, and how you can help lift our nation. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We have Lena Acosta Sandal, who is founder of Stop Parenting Alone, a colleague with me at Moms Rising, and a brilliant advisor to all parents, including me. Welcome, Lena. Thank you so much for that great welcome. I am so happy to be here today. I'm so happy. One of the things that you shared with me a long time ago that I'm hoping you can share with our listeners is about the lighthouse theory of parenting going from the boat to the lighthouse. And as people are struggling with parenting across the ages, I'm wondering if you could share it in your own words. In my own words, the quick lighthouse version. So when our, our when our children are little, zero to five, we're building a boat with them. And, uh, you know, we're creating it and we're putting it together. Between 5 and 11, we get in the boat with them and we tell them about the seas and we tell them about the what's hard, what's good, what's difficult, what isn't, our values. We do all of that together on the boat. And somewhere between 12 and 14, they drop us off on the shore and we are now in the lighthouse and they get in the boat and they go out to sea. So us as parents, we have to make sure that that lighthouse is welcoming, that that lighthouse is available, and that it's ready when they come to shore and they need that support. Beautiful. And this is a beautiful transition into what we're talking about, believe it or not, which is sex ed and kids. Right now, accurate information is under attack in schools in the United States of America. And some people are thinking, oh, we want the same information for every age of every child. No, that is not the case. (laughs) We want information that is age appropriate, just like parenting changes through the ages from the boat to the lighthouse. The type of information that we need to give to children that is accurate is also needs to be age appropriate. And in fact, More than 80% of moms in America agree with this. And guess what? There's another study that shows that when there's age-appropriate, accurate sex ed information, there is less risky behavior at young ages. It actually helps to provide this information, not hurts. And while this is under attack, what are your thoughts as a parenting expert? I... Thinking that a lot of the things that is uh, showing up in education, it's actually a result of a, some of parents' fears and not knowing to how to respond to those fears. That's why I do the work that I do. I like to give parents and, and all caregivers, teachers, parents, coaches, the developmental information. So things that seem scary to talk about or scary to understand, we don't hide or avoid. And I think that right now what is happening is that somebody doesn't know how to talk about a particular pro- a particular 
subject because it scares them or they don't know enough about it. So then they decide that it shouldn't be spoken about at all, or they are trying to control so they don't feel that fear. And then they just put it on everybody else, <laughs> so like, which is uncool. Right. I would like to say right. this is uncool. Like if you have a fear about something, please deal with it yourself. Do not put it on the entire classroom, the entire school, the entire school district, the entire state or the entire nation. Do you have advice on, you know, say you do have a fear about something, say you do have a concern about sex ed. How do you deal with that in a way that's productive, not destructive? The best way to handle fear is with facts and, you know, something as simple as when children are between the ages of five and seven, they're very much curious about genitals, right? So if we are giving healthy sex ed to children in an age appropriate way, this is the time when this the children need to understand uh, the mechanics of the organ that they have, right? So it's time to tell them about the equipment. Uh, but when we don't do that, guess what a child does? Whenever a child is curious about a subject, they will search for answers. So again, if a parent understands the fact that it's perfectly normal to wonder about the equipment, uh, then they won't be so scared to talk about it. And they need to talk about it because if, you know, in our day and age, Google is a great source of information. And I don't know if you've typed in the name of a genital in the Google search, you will see what pops up. So again, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot because we are actually putting the kids in danger when we're not giving them the information that they have. So again, if you're afraid, if you don't know how to talk about this, if you're wondering, you know, I, I don't want to deal with this, it's important to get the facts so that you don't feel like your child is the only one that's asking you about genitalia. Yeah, I mean, and you raise a really important point. There is a thing called Google now. And if parents don't answer the question, kids will come to their own answers on their own and they might not be accurate or what you want your kid to be learning about you know now you've lost control of the age appropriate information train right like exactly exactly and even, even if you yourself are, have parent limits on google in your own home and on their own devices there's other kids that are at school that maybe don't or around them or other ways Correct. to get online to find this information and we've all heard so many stories about misinformation harmful information um, particularly around the areas of sex ed that has come out. And that's one of the big reasons for age appropriate, accurate, factual sex education. Exactly. Factual. That's the key. And and the key is that we we I, I think for for parents, you see it a lot in, in early childhood. In early childhood, a little person will decide, I only play with with, you know, I only read this book. And then they read the book for like 85 days and you're wondering, I have 20 books. Why are you reading this? Because the brain needs mastery. It needs to repeat something so that it integrates it. So when a child has the normal questions about their body, you know, between five and seven or the normal questions about well, what's going to happen to my body? Why do, why, why are people talking about my changes? Or when they're older and they are adolescents and they're wondering about, Oh, what does it need to have a boyfriend? What does it mean to have sex? What does it mean? They will, just like when they were little, they will search, they will attempt to master. And again, what we're doing right now is that we are allowing them to go in the wild, wild west and do it on their own. When we give them information, then they don't have to wonder and then they can ask questions. And we always want to be able to be the source of it. Yes. 
Yeah. So what's your advice to parents who are like, okay, no, okay, you got me. What are my sources? What should I be advocating for? Uh, it's important to advocate for, like you said, age appropriate education. And it's also uh, appropriate for, for parents to look into uh, books. Books are great. Uh, because that's a great way to start a conversation. Uh, there's a series uh, that the American Girl uh, Company did. That is, I love amazing. those books. Yes. My kids and, love those books. And they're they're they they have the one for the boys, and they have the one for the girls. And it's really really funny because the author of the book says that the difference between the two books is about like twenty pages, <laughs> which I think is hysterical. Um, so it it I I would say that for for those of you that you know want to get ahead of it you know books are good but also please advocate especially in, in like i know that it's harder for parents with the younger kids but middle school and high school it is so important that they get you know the the information that they need the information about safety the information about how to manage a relationship um this is important and they need to get it from a trusting adult mentor we know that this is what decreases like you said said, uh, risky behavior, and it decreases experimentation. A lot of the time, you know, middle school and high school, uh, what they're doing is experimenting, and then that's how they get themselves into trouble. So if we're giving them the information, they don't have to go out there and experiment. And, and those studies are so compelling about the increased safety of kids yes. who have accurate information <laughs> that well, is age appropriate and factual i mean it's really compelling sometimes we were, we're afraid that if they talk about it then it will happen but it's actually the opposite well we were doing really well like like the 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 age of the first time that somebody is sexually active has increased rather than decreased right back back in the 80s back when you and i are out, were out there you know doing our thing there was <laughs> the age of of the uh, first um uh, sexual activity was younger we've moved it up two years and that is in the age of information so that that i love that statistic and i love that proof they they're they're pushing it further and further to older ages and we don't want to go backwards. So exactly. right now, there's a big push in many schools to end the accurate, factual, age-appropriate sex education, even though studies show that that has, as Lena just said, actually stopped a lot of early risky behavior. What makes me angry sometimes, what makes me frustrated, is that people are saying that they want no sex ed because they don't want risky behavior, but actually what that accomplishes is the opposite by taking sex ed out of the schools. Right. <laughs> you know right. I mean? and, and, you know, a lot of people are understand that when we talk about sexual education, we also talk about sexual orientation. And I think that that's the big piece. And back to this idea of fear and change and not understanding something that's different, right? That gets in the way of making good choices. At the end of the day, you know, we understand in human development that sexual orientation, who I am physically attracted to is just part of being human. There's no morality, none of that. It's just being human. And I think this is the part that one more time, we don't, we don't have the facts. And, you know, we've been studying this 
for a very long time. So it's 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 upsetting that people are because of their fear, because of their discomfort with something different, um, they are forcing a, a a bigger group of people to not be able to have the conversation of just one more thing that happens in human development. So true. So we only have two minutes left. For parents who are listening and thinking, what can I do? Is there something they should say to their schools? I would approach it from the lens of safety, right? For young children, we have to talk about private parts because it's sexual safety. For elementary school children, again, we we talk about uh, the 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 organ, the sexual organs, because it's about safety. You know, we we now know that children as early as ten years old are exposed to pornography, and that's because they are very innocently are googling, you know, the 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 word vagina, and then you know they find themselves in a porn site. And and again, safety in adolescence is because it's a way to build esteem. It's a way to learn about romantic relationships. It's a way to continue to grow. So I would say if you go to the school board, if you speak to your principal, if you speak to those that are in charge of making these decisions, that this is really about safety. Because when we know more about our sexual health, the the more the more the more we can feel safe and and esteem builds and we can have loving romantic relationships thank you so much lena for helping us with all kinds of parenting thank you for all you do i am honored to be here today and glad to be putting the word out we're going to take a quick break but stick around we'll be right back with our next guest talking barbie and beyonce don't want to miss this one we'll be back in a quick flash Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by a super spectacular return guest who everyone, including me, loves, Ruth the Truth Martin of Moms Rising. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much. I am excited to be with you again. I'm so excited that you're here. And we're going to talk about Barbie, Taylor Swift, Beyonce. We are going to talk about what's happening with pop culture and why it matters. So... All of the things have been happening this summer, and I don't know about you, but I went to the Barbie movie, and actually I went to it twice. It's one of the only movies that I've ever seen twice in a movie theater. I was pleasantly surprised. What about you, Ruth? Oh, Barbie. I loved it. I loved it. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop talking about it. Um, I actually just like to greet random women on the street with, hi, Barbie. Um <laughs> And it's, uh, it's, it was great. I, I took my two daughters with me. I wasn't sure what to expect either. I mean, I think that was part of the marketing genius around it, right? Like a lot of us didn't know quite what to expect, except that it was going to be not what we expected. And uh, I was not expecting it to have so many moments in it about motherhood. Yes, I was there watching it next to my teenage daughter. And I have to tell you in the ways that the character Gloria was both talking to her daughter and talking about her relationships, I sort of have never felt so seen in a movie before. It was amazing. It was pretty amazing. The part about motherhood. I mean, 
Now, obviously, we are moms rising. So we know that motherhood is a big deal, but it rarely shows up in pop culture. It showed up in Everything Everywhere All at Once recently, which won a tremendous amount of awards. It showed up in the Barbie movie. And when you don't see motherhood reflected, even though 86% of people in America become moms or parents at some point in their life, then you see it reflected. It's like, whoa. So what I thought was interesting, it just started right out with motherhood with until Barbie dolls, most dolls were all about the work of care, the unpaid work of care, the -hmm. unpaid work of changing diapers and making food and feeding. And it wasn't until dolls like Barbie became more popular, that it became more prevalent, that there was more agency and autonomy out of that motherhood frame. And honestly, I never thought about that before. Had you? So I I did know that I had forgotten about it. It was something I studied in college a million years ago. Uh, but I had I had absolutely forgotten about it. And I also just thought the entire opening scene was perfection you know just like that kind of takedown of 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 breaking the chains of of you know this kids motherhood is like the only thing that you can do uh, i just thought it was so beautiful and it was a really good reminder of how important representation how important play is uh how we learn so much through the the toys or the things that we get to see and how barbie has um you know it's not perfect nobody's perfect that's actually one of the best parts about that movie was gloria's monologue about the impossibility of being a woman in this country um but i did love that part of it and i'd actually have a couple of those different i played with barbies i loved barbies when i was growing up uh, I had multiple Barbies. And then I also sort of felt what I think a lot of women my age have felt. It was sort of like, oh, maybe it's not super feminist to care about Barbies. I sort of had mixed feelings about whether or not I'd let my own daughters have Barbies. So I like kind of felt that on the one hand. On the other hand, I have a really good friend who runs this amazing program called She Should Run that had partnered with Barbie not that long ago to put together like campaign Barbies, which is not the first time that Barbie has gotten into presidential politics, um, but it was sort of an updated one that also included like campaign staff, um, all women, again, as part of the um, a, a group of Barbies that you could buy in the last couple of elections. I had given those to my kids. And right when this Barbie movie is coming out, Facebook's reminding me that just a few years before that, my daughter had been playing with these Barbies, campaign and president Barbie, talking about how You know, it was going to be a dance party in the United States and how much we loved Hillary Clinton and how amazing Barbie was. And and it was such a it was such a really good time. I mean, there's just layers and layers and layers to this movie. I really could talk about it all day long. And I think that's part of the beauty of the Barbie movie. It talks about things that spark conversations that we deal with every day but hardly ever get time to talk about. I mean, and I think one of the other things is while the movie started with kind of the smashing of the baby dolls, it also was very inclusive of people who were mothers. You know, it wasn't like anti-mom. It was pro being able to make decisions about the direction of your life. Mother, not mother. CEO, president, or not, you know? Beach or, you know, boardroom. (laughs) Like, it wasn't having an opinion about what, people quote should but it was more so talking about autonomy and right now in the united states of america we are in a giant struggle for women's autonomy 
for being able to decide what to do with our bodies, being able to determine how we can build a future life, being able to, you know, make big decisions, including um, how we vote with all the voter suppression and, you know, even down to our democracy being on the line as also misogyny and sexism is increasingly rampant. And so how did it tie to today for you? You know, I think the, I think that you're right. Like this Barbie was certainly not anti-motherhood in any way. I think the only thing this Barbie movie had an opinion about a very strong and real point of view is that the patriarchy is bad for everybody. Yes. Um, Men, women, you know, no matter how you identify the patriarchy is really is, is terrible and and needs to go away and, and really causes a lot of harm. And that with, you know, and that women are free, it should be free to, you know, live the lives and Ken needs to be free to live the life that they want to live without all of these, you know, constrictive ideas of what people can and should do. And in Barbie, you know, there was a mom and a daughter in it, but there was also just the idea of creation and nurturing that, um, I think kind of came out of it too. That's not necessarily about necessarily having your own child, but just kind of what you are creating for the children in your, in your universe and in your ecosystem. It started with the smashing of the baby dolls and it ended with a visit to the gynecologist, which I thought was also spot on given that I think when they started making this movie between when they started pitching it and writing it to when it actually landed in theaters, we have of course seen a huge rollback of our fundamental right to our reproductive freedoms. Um, So that was honestly a bittersweet thing to think about as we were watching that movie um, with my daughters who are in high school and starting to think about where they might go in their next step and how we have to also think about, you know, it actually matters now where you live, whether or not you're going to be able to access the full range of reproductive health care that you need. Um, And so like that's another thing that kind of came up for us while watching that movie is that, yeah, we've come a long way. And we still backtracked and still have a much longer way to go to get where we need to be. Yeah. So if you were going to watch Barbie, which we have watched, how many times have you watched it? Uh, so I've only watched it in the theater once, but ask me how many times we've listened to the soundtrack. And I couldn't really put a number to that. Oh, my goodness. That's great. I haven't listened to the soundtrack. I'm going to have to do that. Oh, my daughter's one of their favorite songs is the Ken song. And so we actually just start singing it randomly when we're annoyed about things that the patriarchy has put up. We'll just start singing. I'm just Ken. Um, It's it's a it's another really amazing part of that movie. I love that. I love also that it does give way to talk about things like the patriarchy, which has been a problem, you know, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. But is really talked about and much less sung about. I love that. So if you're going to use the Barbie movie as a call to action for people to do something. So Barbie, the Barbie movie clearly talks about a problem. Like, yes, we have a problem and names it so well. And in a way that lots of different people can see the problem, some for the first time. What action would you recommend to people toward the solution? Like right now I'm thinking, oh, maybe call your member of Congress and say, please, please, please pass the Paycheck Fairness Act. We needed that yesterday, yesterday, yesterday. But there's a lot more that can be done. What would you recommend? You know, I think that's an interesting question. I I guess I would also just back up and want to look at the entirety of the feminist awesomeness of this summer and what the collective call to action and the message is. So you've got... Beyonce 
and Taylor Swift tours breaking world records in terms of um, being economic drivers and in fact, even holding off recessions and you know boosting local economies. You've got Greta Gerwig's Barbie breaking a ton of records uh, in terms of you know dollars made. You also have the world's the women's World Cup that just ended breaking all sorts of other records and really calling attention and amplifying, you know, where we still have work to be done, where these inequalities exist. In Spain, Spain just won the Women's World Cup, which by the way, from now on, it's just the World Cup and the Men's World Cup. It's how I want to talk about it forever and ever. So Spain won the World Cup for the first time. And immediately in the medal ceremony after the game, the president of the Spanish Soccer Federation, like full on kisses one of the star players of the Spain team without her consent and on just in the moment and then try to just sort of brush it off. And this was after uh, the Spanish Federation had done and said some questionable things about the kind of resources they were going to put into the women's team in that country, had extended the contract of a coach that had been described as toxic and harmful by a number of the women players on that team uh, and had been told, you know, all sorts of like egregious things. And then, you know, they tried the, 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 the media and the soccer guy in Spain was, they tried to kind of blow it off. It's like, Oh, it's just heat of the moment. We're just all excited. Of course, we're just going to grab people and kiss them on the mouth without their consent. And they've since had to backtrack because it was so, egregious and so many people saw it happen and so many people called out this bad behavior internationally and within Spain to push back and now the Spanish Federation is investigating the head of their soccer um federation and, and investigating whether or not he violated the rules of that federation by doing this and so that was an, a direct example of like you put this power on display we put all the spotlight on it People across the globe are paying attention like they are with Taylor and Beyonce and Barbie, seeing that it doesn't have to be this way, naming the bad things that are happening and demanding that they be changed. So I think that's, you know, another example of like you, we can make this change happen. So you call Congress, tell them to pass Paycheck Fairness Act, you know, run for office. Yes, please. Uh, call out sexism and homophobia and misogyny and all of this stuff when you see it. And the louder that we are about this, the more clear we are that we are not going to put up with it, the harder it is for those who woo, who do enjoy the patriarchy to continue to, you know, push that forward. And the other thing is, talk about these issues. Talk about these issues with your people of all genders in your life. Maybe even bring them to the movie and see what they think. I've had so many people tell me that they brought people to the movie with them and had conversations that they weren't ever able to have before. And so one of the things I think- Well, Chris, I would say like that was sort of the magic sauce. Like that is how the Barbies that realized that patriarchy was a bad thing broke the spell of Barbies in Barbie land by talking to their fellow Barbies about how this was bonkers and not acceptable. Like you'll remember that is, that was what broke through in Barbie land when patriarchy- you know, took over was, was those conversations about, Hey, sis, this is not, this is not cool. Let's not stand. For yes. And that's it. That's getting to the beginning of our conversation, how culture change impacts real change. Believe it or not, just talking impacts real change. Just talking with people about the issues that matter to us the most 
helps propel public policy forward in Washington, D.C. So people, take a moment, sing the Ken song or whatever song appeals to you in the Barbie movie, and then talk with some people around you through that special super secret sauce that also happens to make the world better in the Barbie movie. And, you know, then call your member of Congress. And we will make the changes we see. Culture change pushes yeah. legislative change. Call your member of Congress and say, hey, Barbie, we yeah. are good enough. Let's get this done. What? We have to do that action. Hey, That's Barbie. Right. Mom's Rising hey, is going to have to I love mm-hmm. it. Well, thank you so much for being on, Ruth. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for talking. Thanks for everything. You too. Take care, Kristen. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about positive, proactive legislation to help lift our communities and build community safety. We'll be back in a quick moment. Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by Beatrice Beckford of Moms Rising. Welcome, Beatrice. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to come on and chat with you. I'm so thrilled that you're here because our listeners are like, hey, what's going on? Where's their hope? Where's there possibly real change happening? And you have some favorite legislation that has growing momentum behind it that you can hopefully share about. What are some of your favorite pieces of legislation that have growing momentum that are bringing you hope. Yeah, definitely. I mean, lots and lots of really exciting legislation at the municipal and state level. But at the federal level, one of the things that I've been following for the past you know, year, it's been recently reintroduced is the People's Response Act. It's a bill that's co-sponsored by some of your favorite people, including Cori Bush, who is the bill's chief architect and uh, the legislator that introduced the bill, focusing largely on public safety, but really seeing public safety as a public health issue. So, you know, think public safety as violence interruption, think public safety as, you know, non-carceral solutions and first responders, think public safety as, you know, housing for people and providing mental health services. Um, These are all the things that this really innovative bill um, offers in the form of thinking about public safety as um, both a public health issue, but a public infrastructure and a care infrastructure issue. You know, obviously the bill is really centered around the fact that our current approach to public safety is not working. It doesn't work for children, for families, and particularly for black and brown communities that have been devastated by the mental health crisis, by the substance misuse, health crisis, by constant criminalization over the past um, decades. Um, And that it's really important that as we sort of like engage in conversation about what it really means to keep our community safe and free of violence and crime, that we do so in a way that really gives people what they need to thrive, um, as opposed to just continuing with the same sort of problematic responses to crime and violence that we've typically seen that obviously doesn't work because we still navigate some of the same issues. The People's Response Act is really innovative. It's inclusive. It's a holistic and a health-centered, a people-centered approach to public safety that actually does something that no other piece of legislation has done for decades, which is creates a public safety agency within the Department of Health and Human Services that allows for us to take multiple approaches. Um, You know, as you may know, we spend billions of dollars on policing and prisons in this country. We lead the world in the amount of people that we, you know, disappear behind the walls of prisons and jails. And so it's time for you know, our communities deserve this, our families deserve this, 
the 10 million children that are impacted by, you know, um, parental incarceration each year deserve a different type of, of an approach that really invests in the communities that are most harmed by criminalization, um, most harmed by sort of, you know, the continued approaches to to violence um, that plague, um, you know, too many of our communities across the country. And so when we think about the programs that this particular agency, you know, if this bill is passed, creates, is it creates these vouchers for supportive housing, which we know is a huge issue in this country right now with inflation and many of the challenges that families face. It provides supportive housing vouchers because when you have a stable place, the likelihood of your life being a little more stable is, is very real. Um, it provides community-based employment programs. Um, it resources and grants for um, violence interruption and credible messenger programs that take people that have had to navigate the, you know, the harms of our prison and system and policing um, systems um, to be sort of like the mentors to ensure that other young people or other community folks that are coming from communities that are plagued with these issues don't make the same mistakes because they have supports, right? As opposed to, um, you know, just being out there by themselves. Um, it provides for harm reduction based treatments for mental health and substance abuse. Um, because for, uh, you know, a lot of our, um, approaches to substance misuse, even just in the wake of what we learned in the opioid crisis has really been to still criminalize people who are navigating addiction. And this allows for us to take a more harm reduction based approach to, to navigate that. It also invests in infrastructure for our parks and green spaces and um, other in, in essential infra infrastructure investments, including after school and enrichment programs, um, you know, community public health services, community land trusts. I mean, this bill is, you know, does so many things under the guise of public safety that are really rooted in investing in our communities and providing people the things that they need. Because we know that communities that are well-resourced are often the communities that don't have as much um, challenges with crime and, you know, schools and all the things. So I'm really excited about the People's Response Act. Um, it does so much to sort of reimagine public safety in a way that is rooted in what people, I think, across both sides of the aisle have been asking for a long time, which is that we, you know, really have a conversation about, um, you know, violence and crime, and that includes gun violence, that we have a conversation about safety in our communities. And I think what this bill does is allows us to have a conversation that is nuanced and rich and the sort of you know, canon that we can pull from um, that allows us to really think through when we have safe communities, what are the things that are common in those communities? And it's that they have a lot of support. So I'm really excited about that one. Um, another bill I feel really excited about is the Counseling Not Criminalization Act. So, you know, in the same vein, the Counseling Not Criminalization Act really focuses on our schools. We have a, you know, adolescent mental health crisis that has been percolating. We've seen special reports and things coming about about the impact of social media on, you know, on girls and just the sort of like way in which young people are navigating mental health these days. And we unfortunately don't have a lot of resources for them. And our schools don't have a lot of resources for them because they're terribly underfunded. There's, you know, a constant attack on our public school system, which is so essential for having a meaningful and engaged democracy. Um, and this bill allows, which will be reintroduced soon um, under the leadership of uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, invests in those, those types of supports for our students. So counselors, social workers, mental health professionals who go through years and years of training 
to provide the types of supports that young people need when they're navigating a mental health crisis. I mean, the young people that we're seeing in as school age these these days are children who are living as you know in a digital world where they're inundated with information. They're also living in a time when they've gone to school during a global pandemic. And I don't think a lot of us can say that we've ever had to go to school during a global pandemic. And we still don't know what the sort of longstanding implications of that, but investing in resources for schools who are at the forefront of opportunity for our children and are their first entry point into civic engagement and democracy is in this is an essential way that we sort of continue to support um, the actualization of our democracy in this country. And so this bill invests millions of dollars in ensuring that our schools across the country, be they rural or urban and everything in between, have meaningful resources to really invest in supports for students. Um, and, you know, the good thing about this bill is that it really, in providing those types of supports, takes a similar nuanced approach to the PRA. And it allows us to sort of think about, you know, teenage mental health, school systems, and school supports in a way that is evidence-based and allows for schools to have the resources that they so desperately need and have needed for decades to navigate a growing mental health crisis, but also a lot of other challenges that we navigate in school cultures this, these days, including gun violence, right? We see a sort of proliferation of school shootings, um, you know, and we don't oftentimes have uh, meaningful ways to create interruptions to that and obviously ensuring that students in those schools, irregardless of the challenges that they come from in the communities that they live in or in the homes that they go home to, have the types of supports that will allow them to thrive in school and beyond, right? And will keep school safe because we know that relationships are the biggest part of what keeps school safe and resourcing the ability to do that meaningfully with trained professionals is, is incredibly powerful. And so those two pieces of legislation, in addition to some really exciting co-responder models and you know alternative responses to mental health crises and police responses that we're seeing across the country at the state and municipal level are really really exciting it's so exciting and one of the things that people don't realize when we talk about making investments in communities is that when we invest in communities we save so much money and we also open avenues for more people to thrive and it just bothers me because it costs so much more to have societal breakdown than it does to have structures so hardworking people can actually thrive. Why do you think people don't think about it or talk about it in terms of money saving and often just think, oh my gosh, we have to make an investment? No, instead of how much money we're going to save and how many lives we're going to improve and how many communities we're going to lift and how many businesses are going to bloom over time because of these investments. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We do not have as men as much conversation about the the cost saving benefits of reducing our sort of dependency on prisons and policing, um, and what that can do for community investments. Right? It's sort of public safety, crime, and violence has always been a contentious issue in this country, and one that we see percolate up every election cycle. I mean, you know this better than most. And, you know, we're coming up on a 2024 election cycle where I have no doubt that we're going to be here. We're going to be hearing candidates talking about crime and violence and safety. And people are going to be throwing out that some people are soft on crime and some people are not are too hard on crime and everything in between. And so the reality is we, we spend 
billions of dollars on police and prisons. And it's like upwards of like $71 billion. And we cannot say that even within those like expenditures that we're even reducing crime in any meaningful way or cultivating public safety in the ways that we know how to do it. And I think some of that is, you know, these systems, these systems of policing, the way that our sort of criminal legal system has been built has been built since in many ways, this country's founding. And as you know, like it changes hard and change can be really slow. Um, but I think the more that we continue to chip away and innovate and, you know, like get dynamic legislators in office, encourage our, you know, people on the ground, our our families, our parents, our caregivers to be mobilizing and pushing on elected officials to be innovative and dynamic, to be, you know, not taking tools off the table and really thinking through ways that they can be listening to constituents, um, not just like what they want, but the ideas that they have for solutions, which is so important, um, is a big part of this because it has to be both pushing the kind of fiscal implications of this, right? We can save an incredible amount of money if we give people what they need as opposed to disappearing them. Disappearing people in prisons or hyper-policing communities has never yielded a thriving community, right? It's given us a lot more problems than we need and we continue to pay for those problems. The more police we have in communities, the more lawsuits we have and the more that of that money comes out of our tax dollars. In many urban centers, you know, when the police get sued, it's not police departments that pay for that. It's not insurance that pays for that. It's our tax dollars. And so I think that when we start to get into the weeds of, you know, what that 71 plus billion dollars on spending on police and prisons looks like and really, you know, do what we do at our kitchen tables every day and say, OK, this is what you can take away and we can put that over there with the schools and, you know, that type of like in the weeds and, you know, kitchen table innovation is, is what we need to be doing and how we're going to continue to push legislators to do right by our communities. And that means reinvesting so much of those, you know, uh, resources that are just being poured at a problem um, and invest them meaningfully into communities because we know that's what works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and one of the things that I think is so important and we don't have that much time left is just that understanding that we all do better when we all do better. Hello. That's right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so whether you're soft or hard or middle or in between on crime, investing in communities and people helping to lift mental health services, all of that is so important. And too often people take what is perceived as an easy way out um, and don't take the long view of how do we actually make communities healthy. So yep. in this end part of the interview, because we don't have very much time left, what can people do? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely be calling your elected officials, pushing your elected officials, whether they be municipal, state, your representatives at the federal level, to be really thinking through public safety and supporting bills like the People's Response Act, like, you know, um, the Counseling Not Criminalization Act and bills that are important to you. The way that we make change is that we get in, we get out in the streets, we pick up those phones um, and we demand what our communities deserve. You know, I love the reference of people talking about back in the day when, you know, they just knock on the neighbor's door for sugar. And this, the PRA, Counseling Not Crim, these are our legislative sweet spots. And if we want to get back to a time when we cared for each other, a time when our communities felt like communities then we need to be pushing on these sweet spots. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, we have to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about the childcare cliff, why it matters to you no matter what age your children are and why and how you can make a difference. We'll be back in just a quick moment. Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by Maria Soder from the SAMI Center. Welcome, Maria. Hello. Thank you so much. Can you share a little bit about who you are and what the SAMI Center is and what's the Riser Fellow? Oh, my gosh. I would love to. I'm so excited to be here. So I am Maria Soder, and I am the founder and CEO of an amazing, uh, very, very unique preschool in Mill Creek, Utah called the SAMI Center. Um, we're, we're unique because we are fostering the social emotional well-being of children ages three, four, and five years old. Um, we're very small. We have low teacher-child ratio. Uh, we meet every child where they are. Uh, we have a very wide spectrum of children. So we work with children that are neurotypical, neurodivergent, and everything in between. I always like to say, you know, any child who's experienced a a pandemic. So that's pretty much every child, right? Um, We're an incredibly supportive um, environment. We help children self-regulate, express emotions appropriately, uh, control like big impulses and big feelings and um, teach social skills, how to make friends and and have lifelong lasting um, experiences. So that's a little bit about the SAMI Center. I love it. And what about the fellows program, the risers? Oh my gosh, they're amazing. Um, I had this amazing opportunity to, I was invited to be a part of this fellowship and we come together and there's all these incredible women that were, we all, we all share passion in a different way. So it might be healthcare, um, prenatal, um, you know, education, preschool, whatever it is, but we're all equally um, passionate about what we're doing and wanting to make a difference and wanting to be heard and have a voice and create awareness and education. And it's been a, an incredible experience and I'm just honored to be have been a part of it. I'm so excited that you're a part of it too. So this brings together the nexus of real life experience as the CEO of a childcare center and real life experience as an advocate to make sure we're building a nation where everybody can thrive. And that just like we need to build bridges and roads for parents and people to drive on to get to work, we need to build that care infrastructure, including childcare, in order for people to be able to go to work, in order for children to thrive, in order for care workers to earn living wages. And right in the middle of this, we have a situation where during the pandemic, I'm so glad you referenced the pandemic, Congress passed some stabilization grants through the American Rescue Plan and other policies that really helped stabilize the child care community. But in September, there's going to be a cliff because those stabilization grants are going to end. Can you share with our listeners and maybe even the leaders who are listening right now, what has the stabilization funding into the child care community during the pandemic meant and what's going to happen when it goes away in September? Oh my gosh. So amazing. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm just so happy to be sharing. This is, this is, these are my thoughts and this is not just my thoughts, but let me just tell you, um, this is what we know. Okay. 
we know that many providers were able to use um, the grant to pay their staff, not even a living wage, not even a living wage. Let me tell you how much. 11 to $13 is the average that a teacher makes. And, um, you know, I, I have to, I, I want to first just say, I am actually so grateful for the stabilization grant. I want to just be, I want to just share my gratitude and say, thank you so much for that. Because I don't want to just like talk about, yeah, this cliff that's coming where it's, it's going to be really scary, but I do want to express gratitude for the grant. Um, but what it was able to do was able to offer offer programs to pay teachers just a little bit more, you know, for the hard and amazing work that that they that they do every single day. Um, we we know that we were able to with the stabilization grant maybe keep some of our programs open and and going because we were the we were I'm sorry enrollment was so unpredictable during COVID that we didn't know if we were going to be able to keep our doors open. A lot of us generate revenue from, from family tuition. So the, um, the, the grant was able to offer a little bit of, you know, stability in that. Um, we also know that programs like ours, like the Sammy Center, we were able to open. We were able to open. And that's why I really wanted to express my gratitude. Um, we were able to open during this time and offer an amazing high quality program where I actually have the most amazing, skilled, qualified teachers. And I was able to actually pay them a little bit more than that ridiculous average rate, you know, wage. Um, I was able to um, keep a small classroom size. And, you know, offer a one to two ratio sometimes, a one to three ratio. That's unheard of. Um, so really, really offer quality, um, you know, like I said, higher, pass, you know, staff pay, and then hope, hopefully lower, lower turnover. So I think that's what a lot of the, you know, the grant offered a lot of this, this the programs. Um, now going to going into what's going to happen when we lose this grant. We are going to and i've already had to increase my tuition that broke my heart i didn't want to have to do that i i get revenue two ways family tuition and grants and that's why i was so grateful for the stabilization grant and now that it's going to go away i had to raise my rates well do you know what that meant that meant i had to lose families and that's awful because families are um needing needing child care so what does this mean what does this mean if you lose families okay I believe that it's a huge economic reality and tragedy. Um, when we lose this grant here in Utah, um, it's going to hurt Utahns. And the, the reason why I say that is because um, a little a little um, statistic here for you. In 2022, we lost 1.36 billion. That's with a B dollars in economic potential. Um, what that means is, and why that was, is because of lack of childcare, economic potential. So where families can go to work and make a living, educated, you know, families that want to be working, have to be working, not even just want to be working, have to be working, cannot go to work. So back to my kind of my personal story about raising the tuition. Um, when I did that and I had to send out the letter to my families and tell them that I was going to have to raise my tuition, it was it was so hard for me. It broke my heart because um, I really didn't want to do that, but I had to do that. And in that time, I lost families. I lost families that came to me and said, Maria, I can't afford this tuition. So guess what happened to those families? They had to decide who's going to work, mom or dad. Who's going to quit their job? Because they can't work and afford childcare. 
And that's a two household income. What about the single families, the single yep. moms and the single dads? I mean, that's yep. a whole other thing, right? So that's a very, very personal story um, to my heart because that happened to me not one time, not two times. Four families had to leave my program because I had to raise my tuition. And um, I'm very, very sad about it. So I want to just say um, those are kind of my my two my two things of like what I think the grant did, what it's going to do or what it is doing that we lost it. And one way that we're working together in Utah is we're building a network. Um, it's called the Care for Kids. And what we're doing is providers and families are coming together to demand that we invest in child care. And so at least we're trying to do something, you know? Yeah. And I think that's important. And then to do something is why we got the child care stabilization grants in the first place. So I want to let everybody know that the child care system before the pandemic was in crisis and the stresses of the pandemic made that crisis even worse. And we all know it, but I'm going to say it. You said it and I'm going to underscore it. And that's that parents cannot afford to pay any more for child care. Child care already costs in most states more than college. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. And we absolutely cannot afford to pay child care workers any less. Child care workers are now, as you said, some of the lowest paid workers in the United States of America. That puts the system between a rock and a hard place. We can't afford to pay any more as parents. We can't afford to pay child care workers who are often also parents any less. What that means is we need to make some investments, some federal government investments, some state investments, some local investments to stabilize the education system that is childcare. And if we don't do that, then what happens is parents get pushed out of the labor force. We have supply chain issues because businesses don't have enough people in the jobs to be able to keep those supply chains going because they've been pushed out of the labor force. Our economy actually is significantly negatively impacted. The Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently even in Congress testified that because we don't have a solid childcare system, it is harming our international competitiveness as a nation. So whether you have a child in childcare or you know a child in childcare or you just exist in the United States of America, the childcare crisis impacts you because it's going to impact your colleagues. So when we're talking about this, people are sometimes like, oh, well, if we put money in, we're never going to get it back out. It's like money down the drain. Not at all. The return on investment for every dollar in to this childcare crisis to stabilize it, we get at least $8 out later as we're educating, shaping, nurturing, growing world leaders of tomorrow. Um, and we're also having less grade repetition, repetitions in the future. We're having less need for other government programs as people get pushed out of the labor force because they can't afford childcare, then they would need more government programs like TANF and SNAP, which yes, we also want those to be there, but we don't want people to be pushed out of needed jobs. And so it costs more money to have no childcare system than to invest in childcare. And that is something that a lot of people don't get. So what you said at the end of what you were talking about, I just want to uplift too, because I love what you said. And that is that we have not given up. We are still pushing for change. And right now, I personally was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I was running around the Capitol in a wool suit in August in Washington, D.C. Bad idea. <laughs> it was very hot. <laughs> but I was running around letting people know who are in Congress and who work at Congress that we need $16 billion. That's with a B, people. We need $16 billion in childcare stabilization funds so we don't go off a childcare cliff. 
we can avoid this crisis. So everyone who's listening, I want you to pick up your phone and I want you to call your member of Congress and say, hello, we need $16 billion to help stabilize childcare and lift our economy. So again, $16 billion to help stabilize our childcare system and lift our economy. Everybody call your member of Congress. I think we can do it. We've been able to a number of times save childcare. Now the problem is we actually need permanent solutions. So we don't have to run around in our wool suits in August in Washington, D.C. about this. You know, we need a permanent solution. Childcare should have um, a permanent structure that everyone has access to. Everyone is paid fairly who works in childcare and works for our nation so that hardworking parents can make it work for everyone and children can thrive. What is your biggest moment of hope and working on this that can sort of inspire people to make those calls to Congress? I think my biggest moment of hope is I see it every single day. I see the hard work. I see what the teachers do. I see the transformation in the children. So, so that's very, that's very personal. And that's very like, I, I see all these things happening all day long, but if we can just come together and everything you said, Kristen, is just exactly right on. And I believe that we all contribute to the same air our society breathes. It doesn't matter, like you said, if we have children, we don't have children. So I think we have to just recognize that. And what we learned during COVID is when childcare doesn't work, no one does. Exactly. When childcare doesn't work, no one does. Childcare is the work that makes work possible. And let me tell you, it's not one or two people who have children in the United States of America. 86% of people become parents at some point in their life. And we all have had a mother <laughs> at some point in our lives. So now we don't all need childcare at the same time, but hopefully we'll need childcare into the future. I mean, thinking that seven generations forward, we wanna have future generations. We wanna have future leaders. So everyone needs childcare and care is what makes all work possible. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your leadership, your advocacy. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for building change. Thank you for your persistence. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Kristen, also for everything you do. It was an honor. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here it goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. Fight for love.